Hello, listeners. This is Gerard Robinson. Welcome back to another wonderful week of The Learning Curve. Sorry that I could not join you last week. Something came up at the last minute, so I had to turn my curve for a different type of learning, but always <laughs> glad my colleague, Kara, can handle multiple opportunities at one time. So, my friend, glad to be with you this week. Yeah, we're so glad to have you back. And as you know, stepping in for you, pinch hitting was our good friend, Charlie Chipio, who's also a senior fellow yep. at Pioneer Institute. And it was probably a good thing that you couldn't be there, Dora, because we probably would have bored the heck out of you with all of our complaints <laughs> about the Boston public schools. I mean, just like we're just like two people who have been at this for too long. But I'm sure we have no complaints today, Gerard, right? Because there is absolutely nothing going on in the world of education that would warrant giving me heart palpitations, right? No, not at all. No, not at all. Certainly not, Gerard, the federal charter school program and what the Biden administration is trying to do to it. That's not giving me any sort of heart palpitation, Gerard. Uh-oh. What are they trying to do? <laughs> shall I say more? Well, you shall. Okay. I am going to say more, and I'm going to reference here. I mean, there were a lot of good articles written about this this week, and I would love to hear more from our good friend Nina Reese, who's been on this show. But I'll reference an article that many listeners might have seen from the Washington Post editorial board. It's an opinion piece. I love the title, and that's why we're using this one. Biden's sneak attack, or the Biden administration's, I should say. The president himself is not a sneaking attack, apparently. Biden administration's sneak attack on charter schools. Now, okay, for context, first of all, George, do you remember when, do you remember when charter schools were a bipartisan issue? Do you remember, do you remember that? When Republicans like them, Democrats, yeah. they sort of like brought the world together. Do you remember under President Bush that kumbaya moment with no child left behind when like Teddy Kennedy was holding hands with George Bush and they were going to make all this happen. And charter schools were a small part of No Child Left Behind, but that's one administration that supported charter schools. The other administration that supported charter schools and was perhaps more responsible for their growth than any other is the Obama administration. So charter schools have mm -hmm. not always been something that Democrats hated. In fact, a lot of well-known Democrats have supported charter schools. They're a little quiet right now. But at the federal level, right, most education policy, most meaningful education policy, of course, takes place at the state level. But at the federal level, there is a 28-year-old program. It is called the Charter Schools Program. And this program is really important because it provides grants to help charter schools start up. Now, why do charter schools need grants to start up, Kara? Well, they need grants to start up because in most states, charter schools don't get nearly the per pupil that public schools do. And charter schools also don't have access to things like local property taxes, which allow them to build buildings, which allow them to help to enroll kids, hire teachers, all the things that it takes to actually start a school out of thin air. So the charter schools program, this federal program has long been, I mean, it has touched pretty much every single state that has a charter school law. And some of the most successful charter schools, be they boutique charter schools or the big ones like charter school operators like KIPP and Yes Prep, an idea that served thousands and thousands of kids. And by the way, serve them very well. And by the way, serve them better than their district counterparts by almost every measure. And yes, I'm talking about solid measures. The best, the highest quality research that we have on charter schools shows this. So why on earth, Gerard, 
would the Biden administration want to take away the charter school grant program? Well, they're not exactly taking it away. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, when it was announced that they were going to put money toward it, people were breathing a bit of a sigh of relief, according to this article. And then they came out with proposed regulations and the devil is in the details. So it seems like the administration is trying to basically kill this program through regulations. Now, how do you do that? Well, you do that by making it so you're going to put such onerous requirements on charter schools to apply to the grant programs that they're just not going to bother to apply, which means they won't be able to grow in many cases, which means fewer options for kids, which at the end of the day is a really big problem, if you ask me. So what's the sneak attack here? I'm just going to point out two regulations that I think are really important for folks to know about. The first is that the regulations require that charter schools that are applying go through this, what they're calling a community consultation process. And as a part of that process, they have to assess the extent to which opening a new charter school would impact district school enrollment. Note, I don't say public school because charter schools are public, but the extent to which opening a new charter school would impact enrollment in district schools. Now, we know a couple things. We know that in the places like, let's say, New York, where there are really successful charter schools, of course, district enrollment is going down. District enrollment is going down for a lot of reasons. But of course, one of the reasons is that parents want high quality seats. They don't want to send their kid to a school that doesn't work for them. So they move from a district school to a charter school. Now, under these regs, it would make it really hard to justify in many communities opening a charter school because you can assume that district enrollment is probably going to go down because kids are going to go for the higher performing option. That's number one. There's also another caveat which says this program is now going to prioritize diverse by design schools. So what's the problem with that? Certainly we cannot have a problem with diverse by design schools. And I for one do not, but you have to have room for both. So diverse by design schools are schools that purposely seek to attract kids from different walks of life, different races, different socioeconomic status, great schools. A shout out to my friend, Sonia Park, who runs the Diverse Charter Schools Coalition. It's a wonderful organization. But at the same time, we have to realize that a lot of charter schools, as you well know, Gerard, exist specifically to serve certain groups of students. Operators go into communities and they say things like, I want to serve kids who are the most at risk by whatever measure. That means charter schools on tribal lands. That means charter schools that are populated mainly by kids. And most charter schools are disproportionately made up of children of color and disproportionately made up of children who come from a lower socioeconomic status background, and they exist to serve these kids. So in the event that a charter school, like say a KIPP or a Yes Prep that has lots of kids who come from a similar background wants to continue to serve those kids, they're not going to be able to get funding through this program. It's really atrocious, Gerard. It is sneaky. I think the article's right. There's a lot more I could say about it, but I'd like your take just on those two things. And to the last point, let our listeners understand that I don't think anybody on the learning curve, certainly not me, I won't speak for you, my friend, doesn't believe that integration is a good thing. It is a good thing. But it strikes me that when parents of color especially are making choices to say, I want my child in this kind of school, maybe I want my child in a school where other kids look like him or her, right? That we say, no, 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 our schools must be integrated. But parents of means, mainly white parents a lot of the time, have the ability to go off and choose. And we don't say, oh, look at those schools. Look at those high-flying suburban schools. They're not integrated. We should fix them, right? So this is really sticking in my craw, as you can tell, Gerard. 
<laughs> What's your take? I know you have a rant too, but it just give me your two cents real quick on what you think of these new regs. Biden was clear when he was a candidate for office. The NEA and the AFT, two big supporters of his, were really clear, as well as the NAACP, that they were going after federal charter school program. It was even discussed in the Democratic National Committee platform. So everyone knew that. The shock is, why are Democrats doing it? Well, one, they say that charter schools will lead to segregation, that it's going to make the civil rights movement fall to the wayside. Of course, you and I know that someone obviously forgot to tell the Urban League, who's a founder of charter schools. Someone forgot to tell Rosa Parks, who wanted to found a charter school. Someone forgot to tell Wyatt T. Walker, who was Martin Luther King's chief of staff, who helped found a charter school in New York. Someone forgot to tell T. Willard, who with Jeb Bush founded yeah. charter school in Liberty. Someone forgot to tell the AKAs and the Deltas and members of the Divine Nine who worked for KIPP, who worked for TFA, who left traditional public schools and created their own schools. Someone forgot to tell them, but that's part one. Part two, they're going after the federal charter school money because a lot of charter schools would have had a tough time opening their doors or keeping them open without federal money. As much right. as people want to say charter schools are bleeding traditional schools of money, the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools has identified time after time that approximately 75 cents on the dollar goes to a charter school. And as you mentioned, there's, there are issues from uh, facilities in this. This is really about power. Now, it's not solely about being Democrat, because nearly nine out of 10 charter schools that are approved are approved by school boards. And a number of these school boards, in fact, are in blue cities. A number of them are Democrats. Yes. So it's not just being a Democrat. This is about do you want to feed the bureaucracy or do you want to give entrepreneurship a try? And you use terms like racism, white supremacy, desegregation, integration. You use terms which have legitimate means in understanding our history to bypass the fact that some black parents could care less whether or not they sit next to someone who's not in the same neighborhood or who may look different than them. As someone who's a founder of True Charter Schools, as someone who actually worked for an organization that worked with black parents across the country, in the 30 years I've done this work, I have yet yet to find one black parent say, oh, no, I'm not going to the charter school is too black. And yet we praise HBCUs because they're black and not as diverse as we would think in terms of race, but are by socioeconomic status and zip code. So I'm not shocked. This is about power. It's not about people. It's about power. And at some point, people on both the left and the right who support charter schools will get into a room and have an honest conversation about who are frenemies, who are enemies and who are lovers. And this is something where the Democrats have to push back on their own because someone like Tom Birmingham in Massachusetts helped to create the charter school law. Senator Young out of Minnesota. This was a Democratic piece. And these are people who are staunch, not only Democrats, but we're in unions. You can't rely on the Republicans to move this issue alone. This has got to be something for the Democrats to do. Yeah, I'm holding my breath. Well, you're going to hold your breath on my rant. And my rant is it's about an article in Politico. It's called, If You Can't name Biden's education secretary, you probably aren't alone. And this is uh, Secretary Miguel Cardona. Mm -hmm. And you the article talks about, oh, you, I can name him, you can name him. A few people can, but I'm not shocked that most people cannot name him, but they can't name him for reasons that seem obvious, but also for reasons that are well, not well known. So for starters, the article really just went into that he came into the job, seen as a consensus builder, 
didn't come in with a lot of controversy. Yes, because we have school closures. That was a controversy. But him as a man alone going to the position, not as much controversy as his predecessor. We'll get to that. But he did have a really interesting conversation with Charlemagne the God from the Breakfast Club about the fact that, listen, Biden said he was going to forgive student loans and he hadn't done it. And he's got the Senate. He can make a decision to do so either through law or can do some things through executive order, not as much as people can think, but he can do something. And in the article, it says Cardoza bobbed and weaved and Charlemagne went to him and said, look, you know, you guys have to do more. But the article is really going into A, he as secretary should do more, and B, maybe, and this is some of the logic, maybe if he did more, more people could name him. Well, I really don't think he could do more to put his name into the limelight. And that's because of the structure of what we know of as the Department of Education in general. So let's start with number one. The Department of Education as a department wasn't created until 1979, 80. And so when you look at the number of agencies we have with the secretary, it's a relatively young one. Now, education, quote unquote, department or office itself, this year, in fact, last month, turned 155 years old. The Department of Ed has its roots going back to 1867, with the beginning of the Reconstruction Movement. And it has had a very interesting life. It was in the Department of Interior, either as the Office or Bureau of Education between 1868 and 1939. And then it went to the Federal Security Agency. And then it also became a part of the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. And these two things took place between 1939 and 1979. So we don't have a Department of Education until 1979-80, which makes Cardona only the 12th U.S. Secretary of Education. How many secretaries or leaders have we had for different departments? much larger. So I think that's one reason we can't name him. Number two, confirmation process for Secretary of Education between 1979 and 2015 was pretty uneventful. If you put it in context with what happened with Betsy DeVos or what recently happened with confirmation process for Katanji Jackson. But let's look at it from a DOE perspective. Between the time Ronald Reagan was president to President Obama, secretaries were approved for the job with 80 or more Senate votes or confirmed by voice vote or unanimous consent between 1979 and 2015. The whole cantankerous thing about the process really started in March 2016 when John King, former secretary or their commissioner in New York, he went up to be secretary, in fact, secretary for Obama, and his vote was 49 to 40. 41 Democrats voted for him, nine Republicans did. And guess what? Only one Democrat voted against John King. Who was it? A senator from his home state of New York. And why was the vote made? Number of reasons, but part of it was when he was commissioner and when he helped run a network of uh, charter schools or work in a network with charter schools, he supported things like what? Accountability for teachers. He supported things like what? Charter schools and really innovative ways. And so because he did not follow the bureaucratic role of thinking how we reform schools if reform is needed, they decided, nope, I'm going to vote against you. Did he get over? Yes. But someone from his state and the only Democrat to vote. Well, fast forward to 2016. Of course, we know, well, 2016, we know what happened uh, later on. You had Betsy DeVos, 50-50 time, Mike Pence had to come in. And so one reason we don't know a lot about who the secretaries are historically, and we've only had 12, 
is because the process used to approve one just wasn't as cantankerous as it has been. Now, with Betsy DeVos, a lot of people could name Betsy DeVos. More people could name Betsy DeVos in the first 100 days of her being in office, Cardona. And it wasn't because we're in the pandemic. It's because the NEA, the AFT, and others went after her hard, and understandably so. They're saying she was an educator, she's supposed to support school choice, got it. But they went after her hard. So one reason that we know more about Betsy DeVos than we do about our current secretary, Cardona, is because when Betsy DeVos, for example, went to visit the school, there were people standing in the way to block her automobile from coming into the school. And when the doors were open, there were people trying to block her from getting into the school. Did the same thing happen to him this year? Yes, of course, he had come in the office when schools were closed. But now the school visits are taking place. So I think part of it is we just don't know much about the history of our secretaries in general. And let's get to the third point. In the article, it mentions that he's a middle-of-the-road guy. He likes to build consensus. He wants to get things done. That is often cold for two things. One, we like him as the establishment. Therefore, we won't challenge him. Number two, it's also cold for, well, we can work with him, and therefore we won't make him a media darling. Think of the number of Democrats who ran for Congress and at the state level, for state level office, who used Betsy DeVos's picture or a clip from her oh, hearing yeah. or from a speech oh, yeah. to run for office. How many of those are going to be used with Cardona? Not as many. I'm sure people on the right will use it, but not the same. And so for those three reasons, I think that's why we can't name our secretary. And then I'll end with this. When you look at data from Gallup, from Pew, the Bill of Rights Institute, iCivics, if you look at researchers who've done deep dives into school board elections and who've also looked at secretary of education positions in general, very few people prior to the pandemic could have named their local school superintendent or their local school board member. So if we're saying that all politics are local and we know that education is really handled at a local state level, many people couldn't name the person most responsible for the education of their child, superintendent and an elected school board. So I just think this has a lot more to do about marketing and in marketing their four P's, product, place, price and promotion. But when it comes to a secretary who wants to do something different, Democrat or Republican. This also includes Arne Duncan, who the NEA voted no confidence over because of his support for teacher accountability and charter schools. So it's not just that. But if you're a person who the establishment believes wants to change too much too fast, then you have to add in a fifth P to marketing, and that's politics. Hmm. Amen to that, Gerard. And I have to say, like, if I were on you, Duncan, I would be super proud of that vote of no confidence. <laughs> Just saying, like, I, <laughs> considering the source, and I very much liked Secretary Duncan, and I think you're right on the politics. And Secretary DeVos, agree with her or not, the woman has a very strong <laughs> constitution because she endured a lot. She endured quite a bit, and I thank you for pointing that out. In Learning Curve listeners, we are going to be back in just a moment with Dr. G. Edward White, the David and Mary Harrison Distinguished Professor of Law and University Professor at the University of Virginia School of Law. Gerard, sounds to me like somebody you might know. Uh, Learning Curve listeners, we'll be back in just a moment.
Learning Curve listeners, please help me welcome Dr. G. Edward White. He is the David and Mary Harrison Distinguished Professor of Law and University Professor at the University of Virginia School of Law. He is the author of 20 books on subjects ranging from legal and constitutional history to judicial biography and the life of Alger Hiss to baseball. Professor White's most recent books include Law in American History, Volume 3, 1930-2000, Law in American History, Volume 2, From Reconstruction Through the 1920s, Law in American History, Volume 1, From the Colonial Years Through the Civil War, and American Legal History, A Very Short Introduction, all from Oxford University Press. He's also the editor of the John Harvard Library edition of Oliver Wendell Holmes's The Common Law. White's books have won numerous awards, including final listing for the Pulitzer Prize in History in 1968. He was law clerk to Chief Justice Earl Warren of the Supreme Court of the United States for the 1971 term. White is a member of the American Law Institute, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and the Society of American Historians. He is a member of the Bars of Virginia, the District of Columbia, and the Supreme Court of the United States. White received his BA from Amherst College, his PhD in American Studies from Yale, and his JD from Harvard Law School. Professor White, thank you so much for being with us today on The Learning Curve. Oh, my pleasure. Well, I've already talked about much of your body of work just in the bio, so it's clear that you've had a a sweeping, a remarkable academic career, volumes that chronicle the major legal themes that are woven throughout American history. You also clerked for and wrote a biography of Chief Justice Earl Warren, who was the author of the landmark Brown v. Board of Education opinion. Could you tell us a little bit about Chief Justice Warren, who he was, and And talk about how Brown has shaped America's legal culture specifically with regard to access to education. Well, first, with respect to Warren's personality, he had what I would describe as a deceptive affect. When you first met him, he was charming and and gregarious and in a disarming sort of fashion, because at least when I first met him, he was the Chief Justice of the United States and had been so for many years. And he'd been governor of California, had been a presidential, vice presidential candidate, and and for that matter, a presidential candidate. And he was famous. And yet he was, I would almost say, folksy and pleasant and not at all imperious or standoffish. And so the first impression of him was that, gosh, what what a regular sort of fellow this is informal and easy to get to to know. That was not fully accurate. He was a very bright, tenacious, ambitious, focused person who was, for me, and I think for others who clerked, some others who clerked with him, a a pretty demanding boss who was not very charitable about, (laughs) about work that was less, that he regarded as less than satisfactory. I'll tell just one story about that. We had a practice at the Supreme Court when I was clerking that the justices would have informal lunches with the law clerks, and the people who were charged with organizing the lunches were the clerks of the justices. So I happened to be organizing a lunch one week with Warren, and he met with the clerks, and we had quite a, a good lunch. And then after the lunch was over, we turned to go back to his chambers. The court, of course, is a large building with a lot of different rooms and corridors and passageways. It also has a cafeteria, 
and I turned the wrong way, headed back to Chambers, and we ended up in the Supreme Court cafeteria. Warren did not make a practice of circulating on the court when he was a justice. He saw some other justices, but he didn't go out and meet with the public, and none of the justices really did. Some justices ate breakfast or, or meals with their law clerks in, in the cafeteria. Warren did not. So anyway, I walked in the cafeteria, and there's Chief Justice Warren, and many people who were the staff and, and other people who were gathered in the cafeteria saw him and, and rec- said hello to him. And he went around and glad-handed and said hello to people and smiled and carried on. And, and then out of the side of his mouth said to me, get me out of here. And that was, uh, that, that was in some ways a, a representative episode. He was a difficult I've had a few employers in my life, and I would say on the continuum of, of difficulty, he was he was pretty far on one side. But uh, at the same time, a, a very admirable person, a very scrupulously honest and fair-minded, and I admired him as, a, as an individual, and I, it was a privilege to, to be able to work for him. Now, with respect to Brown versus Ford, of course, that was many years before I clerked. Warren's a very important figure in that opinion because he pushes very hard among the other justices to get unanimity and also pushes very hard to have a opinion written that, as he put it, would be accessible, non-judgmental, short, one that could be reprinted in, in the newspapers. He wrote the opinion himself and produced that. Now, of course, Brown versus Board transforms the public educational system of the United States, at least for at the time, because before Brown versus Board of Education, uh, public schools can be and were in, in some states segregated w- with a result that African-Americans and whites did not have the same experience of going to school together. They may have met after school. They may have participated in other activities together, but they were not educated together in some states. And, and that a lot follows from that. And perhaps the most important thing that followed from it was that segregation was imposed on African-American minorities by white legislative majorities. The African-Americans were, for the most part, not even represented in the legislatures that segregated African-Americans and whites in the public school system. It is imposed because of a perception, an inaccurate but widely held perception, that African-Americans were inferior to whites. And so somehow the the presence of African-Americans being educated along whites alongside whites would be contaminating or, or, or debilitating to the white students. It's a little hard for us to take all that in in the 21st century. I mean, that's a pretty shocking set of assumptions. But after Brown and after the follow-up cases, segregation in, in public education is over. And now we have vestiges of segregation and we have facto segregation. We have a, a fair amount of, of racial separation in the public schools but you can't do it legally. So it's a tremendously important decision, and it's one for which Warren deserves some credit. I have just a little bit of a follow-up question. At the outset of the show, Gerard and I were speaking to one another about the difference between, you know, saying schools should be integrated because it's for the best, and parents being able to freely make choices about the school's that are a good fit for their children. And sometimes those schools end up being segregated because certain types of parents are making the same choice, right? Or because a school might have a mission or a vision to, for example, serve kids who have had the least access to a particular kind of education, particular high quality education. 
can you help us understand the extent to which Brown does or does not impact that argument that somehow if parents are making, that is, I guess my question is, if parents are making the choice to say, this is the best kind of school for my child, public school, I'm talking public charter school, does the Brown decision have any bearing on that? The Brown decision does not require communities to structure the location of schools or the distribution of income or housing within the communities so that all schools end up being an equal percentage of African-Americans and whites. There are lots of opportunities for parents to choose schools along lines that might have the effect of their students, of their children, if they're white children, being educated with comparatively few African-Americans because of patterns of housing or income distribution within a community. Brown versus Board doesn't say anything about that. I think the principal impact of Brown versus Board is rather at a level of perception. I think after Brown versus Board, it is no longer possible for a legislature or a, a municipality to say, we think African-American children and white children should be separated in the public school systems because we think it would be disadvantageous to both for them not to be separated. You can't do that. And when you try to unlock that assumption, the message is that segregation in public education is based on a flawed perception. It's a flawed perception of both white and African-American children, the perception being that somehow their being integrated in a school would be disadvantageous to both. Indeed, the alternative message is communicated that it would be advantageous to both. Now, having said that, that does not mean that Brown is a mandate compelling all parents to have their children educated if they're African-American along with white children or if they're white with African-American children. Brown doesn't talk about that. Brown just basically says that the state can't do it. Thank you so much, Professor. And I think this is a good segue into my first question for you. When we discuss Brown v. Board of Education and what took place with Brown 1 and 2 in the 50s, this is really a discussion that takes us back to the Civil War and its origins and the ending of slavery and other 20 turning points in American history and law. With that said, could you discuss what our teachers and students today should know about the Dred Scott decision in 1857, Lincoln's constitutional powers, as well as the making of a quote-unquote new birth of freedom, came about as a result of the 13th Amendment. Yeah, the first thing to say about, about the Dred Scott decision has to do with the original framing of the Constitution. There is no mandate in the Constitution to uh, abolish slavery, and there are several passages suggesting that slavery is permissible. And the general understanding about slavery up to the Dred Scott decision was that slavery was a matter for states. The states could decide for themselves whether they wanted to impose slavery or not. The federal government doesn't have any power to regulate it. Now, what happened in Dred Scott was an exception to that understanding was potentially created by the fact that 
some federal legislation outlawed slavery in particular territories, and one of the territories was the Northwest Territory. And so a, a series of decisions emerged that suggested that if a slave owner repaired with a slave into a free territory, and then by extension into a free state, that the slave would become free by virtue of that sojourn. The word is describing a visit that's not a change in permanent residency, but rather a, a trip somewhere. Now, states responded to this by having legislation that said, if you it's called reattachment legislation, which said that if the slave then returned with its owner to a slave state, the slave state, the slave status reattached. Other states did not have that. Dred Scott comes about because a slave goes into a free territory uh, and a free state in, in the company of his owner and then returns and then challenges his, his slave status. There's a lot of complicated legal questions in Dred Scott, but the thing that makes it a particularly notorious opinion is the argument that Chief Justice Tawney makes in his opinion. There are a bunch of separate opinions in Dred Scott. The court was badly split in Dred Scott, and that resulted in individual justices filing separate opinions, which was not the typical practice. But in Tawney's opinion, there is a suggestion that uh, there are a couple of, of really quite notorious suggestions, but one of the suggestions is that the due process clause of the Fifth Amendment uh, prohibits slaves from being free when they enter into a free state or territory with their owners because that's a violation of the property rights of the owners. It's a taking, if, there were, if you will, of property notice slaves are treated as, as property. So that now, now, this argument had, had not shown up in any prior Supreme Court decisions at all, let alone slave cases. There just wasn't. It's the first use of the due process clause in that fashion. If that argument prevails, that suggests that slavery may not be outlawed in any future state or territory. That is, the whole West, the whole trans-Mississippi West is open to slave owners to bring their slaves in and the states, or once, they, once the territories become states or while they're territories, they may not pass legislation freeing the slaves. So that, that's an attempt to kind of codify under the constitution the perpetual enslavement of a group of, of Americans. The reason with that decision on the books, the only remedy really is to have a constitutional amendment that in effect overrules Dred Scott or to have a war in the course of which there's an emancipation proclamation and the federal government takes it upon itself to outlaw slavery. So that decision, the Dred Scott decision and the, and the immediate aftermath is, is one of the absolutely pivotal episodes in American history. In volume two of your work, American history, or really the law in American history, you talk about reconstruction, you talk about huge influx of immigrants and what that meant to the 1920s and what role it led to moving ahead. Are there some key themes from that era and particularly what you focused on in volume two that should make us think maybe more clearly or more critically about the modern times we live in today? I have a trope that runs through all three of the volumes, which has to do with the relationship of what I call free modern understandings of status and identity and, and law and nature and history 
and the transition from those understandings into understandings we have today, modern understandings. In my trilogy, the, the second volume is a transition period. It, it's a period where pre-modern understandings of law and judging and history are still in place, but gradually being eroded. And I think the principal shift from pre-modernist to modernist thinking is the idea that human agency is an important causative agent in the universe. That is to say, humans have the capacity and the power to control their destinies, make their futures different from their past. In pre-modernist epistemology, pre-modernist understandings of consciousness, there are a number of causal agents that are external to human will and human power that are treated as causally important. Humans can't really change the course of history any more than they can change the course of their lives. They are born, they, they mature, they die. That's sort of, they're fated to do so. Nations are likewise fated. There's not a sense of history being progressive. It's rather cyclical. But maybe most importantly, the capacity of humans to control their own experiences and alter their future is extremely limited. Over time, that view breaks down in, in, in science, the emergence of science has to do with it, the secularization of American education, but it happens over a very gradual period. So it, it isn't really until the 1920s that you might say modernity, the understandings about modernity and, and modernist consciousness has really emerged, and it really is only after 1930 that this becomes a majoritarian position. So I tried to take a series of themes, immigration is one, industrialization is another, and just try to show how their impact on the experience that Americans were having played a role in altering this understanding of causal agency. Thank you. Speaking of 1930 moving ahead, let's talk about the Supreme Court of the United States. It's power, its influence, not only American law and culture began to expand over time, focusing on areas of educational equality, Brown just being one of several examples, but also regulating commerce, uh, getting itself involved in elections and other items. Recently, we saw, at least many of us did, the uh, confirmation hearing for Judge Brown. And for a lot of people, it's the first time they had watched a confirmation hearing partly because of the historic nature of it, same could be said for the previous nominee. But how should we think about the Supreme Court and its power today? There's talk of trying to expand uh, the number of people on the court, discussions about packing the court, and some people who really believe that the Supreme Court should be a policymaking body rather than one to interpret the law because there's so much cantankerous relationships on Capitol Hill. What are your thoughts? Well, I think the first thing to say, and something I emphasize in the volumes, is that the court's business, what the court does, has just radically changed over time. Since 1925, the court's docket has largely discretionary, which means it can choose the cases that it entertains, largely through the use of the certiorari process. That wasn't true for much of the court's history. It had a lot of cases that were brought to it on appeal from the lower federal courts and the high courts of, of states that it, it couldn't decline here. 
its docket got very, very um, busy in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and certiorari was an attempt to limit that. The court didn't have its own building until the late 1930s. The, the justices held court in a, in a courtroom in the basement of the Capitol. The justices worked for the most part at home. They came into the Capitol only basically to hear arguments and put on their robes. Their internal deliberative process was really dramatically different. In the modern court, fewer cases are brought. They're much more visible cases. They're much more what we call public law cases, cases involving constitutionality of legislation or statutory issues. Comparatively few what we call common law cases, contract cases, torts cases. So it's a much more visible court, and arguably it's a, it's much more political court in the sense that its decisions have a greater political impact. Not to say that there were not very important decisions the court decided over over time, but now it's more the case that that a, a fair number of the cases that the court hears on any particular term will have immediate visible impact and be perceived of as having political consequences. There's no doubt that partisanship has increasingly dominated the process for nominating justices, and it's also dominating people's perceptions of justices. The, the press regularly describes justices as liberals or conservatives, and in Judge Jackson's nomination, the repeated theme is, well, if she's confirmed, it's not going to change the configuration of the court because she's going to be replacing Justice Breyer, who's a liberal, and, and, and there'll still be a six to three conservative majority. I think those labels are, are short-sighted and, and sometimes misleading. The court decides a lot of cases where you don't see that kind of obvious breakdown. The court has a fair number of unanimous opinions where, quote, liberals and conservatives are joined in reaching the same outcome. I don't care for this, but I recognize when you have a situation where a person like Judge Jackson, who is eminently qualified, gets 11 people on the Judiciary Committee not to recommend her nomination being brought out simply because they happen to be members of a party that are different from the nominating president, and moreover, using her nominating process to just make a number of political points, seemingly speaking to some perceived constituents rather than actually asking her serious questions. So I think this is a disturbing trend, but I, I don't think it's going away. But I don't think it has anywhere near as much to do with the court's decisions as many people might think. I, I do not think that the court, and I do not think the court should be, a policymaking institution in the sense that if law is different from policy, where they're rendering decisions in terms of what they perceive to be the immediate short-run political consequences of reaching one or another result. I don't think that's what justices mainly do. I think what justices mainly do is look at authoritative legal sources that, that they think are bearing on a particular case and try to fit that case within an existing doctrinal framework. And sometimes they feel they need to modify the framework. But they are more limited, they are more constrained in their decision-making than some commentary might suggest. And I think that's a good thing. I think the Supreme Court's authority stems 
in large part from its being outside of, or at least apart from, politics, at least somewhat. That is, operating in a, in a world that is not identical to the world of legislatures or the executive or popular mandates, but operating independent in, in part of those. And I feel that a Supreme Court justice ought to feel a certain amount of freedom. That gets me back to a comment that Earl Warren made publicly, as well as today, saying when he was in politics, when he was governor of California or attorney general, lots of times you had to have uh, half a loaf. You, you had to compromise because that's the way politics work. Once he got to be a justice, he said there was no need to do that. Uh, there's no need to be half a loaf. If you think that the whole loaf ought to be handed out because of a, a, of a constitutional or other legal principle, you're free to do it. And, and I think that's exactly right. I think that's what the mandate for a Supreme Court justice is. Thank you. Well, Professor White, I want to open it up to you to read a passage from a book of your choice. Well, this is one from volume three in my on American history series, and it, it touches on pretty much what we've just been talking about. It's an excerpt from the last two pages of volume three. If this series of volumes can be said to have a theme extending throughout their entire coverage, that theme might be described as the ongoing, complex, and ever-changing relationship between law and American culture, of which politics is perhaps its most visible manifestation. American history, as portrayed in these volumes, has been the successive unfolding of singular manifestations of American culture, politics being prominent among them. Law, as portrayed, has been another singular manifestation, consistently interacting with its cultural context in a reciprocal, causal fashion. When one considers the relationship between law and politics in American history, characterizing that relationship as inseparable seems inaccurate. This is because although law has continually interacted with politics over the course of that history, from at least the Declaration of Independence on, law has been conceived as a body of timeless foundational principles that transcend and constrain human partisanship. It's been thought as apart from and above politics. And law in American history can be seen as a collection of episodes in which the close connection between law, politics, and culture, and the recurrent attempts to shore up a conception of law as a body of principles transcending politics and resisting being overwhelmed by the perceived cultural impairments of a movement in time. And then I end by saying the first step in discerning what has been an abiding and essential tension in American legal history is coming to grips with this understanding of the place of law in America. In each generation, law has been seen as undergirding the imperatives of politics and culture, but has also reflected those imperatives and in an important sense remained apart from them. Professor White, thank you so much for joining us today. Kara and I always enjoy someone who can weave together historical concepts, talk about law, talk about politics, but also make us think a little deeper about the documents that have shaped our society and uh, in our form of government. Look forward to having you again in the future and keep up the good work with using your scholarship to make us think differently. Thank you very much for having me.
So here's my tweet of the week, and it's from our friends at the 74. As the nation's report card resumes for the first time since pandemic, federal testing chief admits she's, quote, unquote, a little nervous about the results. And the article goes into what we should be thinking about and concerned about as educators, parents, and people who are just interested in schools. So it's a great tweet, and our listeners should definitely read that story. It's a great tweet. It's a great article. And boy, do I appreciate a commissioner who says exactly what she's thinking, because we should all be nervous. She's got a big job to do. Gerard, we've got a friend on with us next week, somebody that you and I both know and really admire. We're going to be speaking with Denisha Merriweather. She is the Director of Public Relations and Content Marketing at the American Federation for Children and founder of Black Minds Matter, a young, very accomplished woman who's got a great story to tell. So, Gerard, until next week, take good care, and we'll try and be cheerier, right? Not as much ranting, a little more like singing or something. In fact, ranting for me was being cheerful. I was just glad to let the spirit move. (laughs) (laughs) Here we go. Take care of yourself, my friend. See you soon. Bye. 